Is he the Ancient of Days? Amen. Is it my turn? I think it is. You know, one of the many, many things I'm going to miss while I'm on sabbatical is you all singing praises to the Lord. Love you guys. And we love our God, don't we? As you're turning to the book of Nahum, Nahum chapter 2, let me just say that beginning next week, you all are in for a real treat because uh, Pastor Sean and also Pastor Earl will be leading us through a study of uh, God's design and purpose for his church. And um, I read ahead a little bit uh, to where uh, the Lord has led them to take that uh, time in the word with you, and it's going to be rich. So be, be praying in that direction, will you? Nahum chapter 2. We have really been singing the message of Nahum uh, since we began to uh, lift up our voices to the Lord. Uh, we've been reminded in song already that God's uh, people face an enemy whose attacks are relentless. Have you noticed this? Uh, the enemy of souls, Satan, uh, and his whole world system are just relentlessly attacking the people of God. His, his goal, uh, though it is disguised, it's, it's candy-coated much of the time, is to discourage and to disable, and if he could, destroy. But our God is the Ancient of Days. Our enemy entices us with lies. Do you see lies put forth in the world today? My goodness, deception. And then he shames us when we believe those lies. Anybody been down that road? And our enemy uses his world system to tempt us to place our hope and our, our contentment and our security in hands other than our fathers. We, we, we place those things, those hopes in money and, and government and circumstances and self and those hands, how many of you know, ultimately fail us? But our God is the Ancient of Days. And the message of Nahum is that our great enemy is defeated. And we're meant to live in the reality of this victory that Christ has won for us. Satan is defeated, though his demise is incomplete. And Christians are meant to live in the reality of Christ's victory. We are meant in the power of the Spirit to advance against sin's strongholds within us and around us, rather than being fixated on and fearful of that which is yet incomplete. Isn't that how you want to live? That's how I want to live. I want to live as a victor in Christ, not as a victim of the enemy's constant harassment. Nahum, by God's grace, will help us with this. Remember the very name, Nahum. Are you there yet? You've had plenty of time. It's not on me if you're not there yet. Nahum, the very name, means comfort. 
God brought a message of great comfort to his hard-pressed people in Judah back in the 7th century B.C. Remember, Judah had been, been taunted and taxed and used and abused by Assyria for some 200 years. Their cousins to the north in Israel had already been conquered and taken captive, and yet God sends Nahum to Judah with this message of great comfort to his people. And if you read ahead, anybody read through Nahum? Of course. You understand that he writes in quite graphic and gruesome language of the future destruction of Assyria and its capital city, Nineveh. And I want us to keep in mind that he writes this a generation before it actually happens. He describes with crystal clarity, and in some cases minute detail, that which has not yet occurred. The enemy is defeated, Nahum says to God's people, though its demise is incomplete. And his message to Judah is really God's message to his people today. Keep your gaze on this promised future reality. Live in light of this certain victory. Appropriate this victory now. Do not live merely by what you see and feel in the present and watch on Fox News. The God of justice fights for his people, and how many of you know he always wins? He always wins. Nahum chapter 2, verse 1. He who scatters has come up before your face. Man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your power mightily. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. The shields of his mighty men are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the spears are brandished. The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their walk. They make haste to their, her walls, and the defense is prepared. The gates of the rivers are opened, and the palace is dissolved. It is decreed. She shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up, and her maidservant shall lead her as with the voice of doves beating their breasts. Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they flee away. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. Take spoil of silver, take spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize. She is empty, desolate, and waste. The heart melts and the knees shake. Much pain is in every side, and all of their faces are drained of color. Where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion walked, the lioness and lion's cub, and no one made them afraid. The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs, killed his lionesses, filled his caves with prey and his dens with flesh. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messenger shall be heard no more. 
What in the world is that about? Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, taunts the most fearsome superpower on planet Earth at the time and the the most awesome capital city, Nineveh. And I got stuck on the word scatter here in verse 1. I've made tremendous progress, and so we're going to just squeeze that one a little bit to start out with. He who scatters has come up before your face. Why did that sound familiar to you, probably? Well, you remember the early history of Nineveh from our study of Jonah, some of you. Nineveh was founded by a fellow named Nimrod. People don't name their kids Nimrod anymore, but they did then. And Nimrod was the great-great-grandson of Noah. Nimrod was strong and proud, a mighty hunter, the scripture says. And the very first citizens of the cities that he founded, including Nineveh, were proud and arrogant and self-satisfied, so much so that they built a tower. Somebody read the Bible. (laughs) They built a tower as a monument to their own greatness. And you and I know the attitude and the actions of people who are obsessed with their own greatness, don't we? Nineveh's very heritage is that they are people made to glorify God, and yet they glory in themselves. They glory in their own accomplishments, and and they they do this to such an extreme that they live as if they, they don't need God. And to prove the point, they build a tower, and what did God do? He scattered them, didn't he? We know the Tower of Babel described in Genesis 11. God destroyed that tower and he confused the people's language. He scattered it, sent them babbling around the known world. And now says Nahum, the great scatterer, Yahweh, has come again. Go ahead and watch for him. Get your armies ready. God doesn't need to sneak up on anybody. He has no need for the element of surprise. Did you know that? He'll face you head on. And all of your readiness to face him apart from mercy will be pointless. What a warning to God's enemies today. Justice is coming. And it doesn't matter really whether you shrug your shoulders at that or shake your head in disbelief at that. And woe to the person who thinks they can overcome it, as did Nineveh. God's justice is real, and he will judge all nations and all people for their offenses against him. That's the message of Nahum. And I won't bother asking you if you think America has offended God. Have you offended God? You need to know that God's justice is real. It's just as real as his love and his mercy. And the enemy of souls comes to people and says, you know, um, God is only love. He he is only mercy. Uh, God does not care about justice when it comes to your offenses against him. How many of you know that's a lie? Don't, Don't be deceived. 
says Nahum. God does care. God's justice is real, and it is fierce. And to face his justice apart from mercy is to be scattered from all of his goodness with finality. Are you hearing this? Why has Yahweh, the scatterer, come to Nineveh? Well, he's now judging Assyria for her wickedness, isn't he? And in doing so, he's going to liberate his oppressed people, Judah. They have been constantly harassed. Some of them carted off into slavery by this bloodthirsty enemy. This has been going on for two centuries. God says, take comfort. I'm about to liberate you as I judge your enemy. Your rescue draws near. No longer will Judah be tormented day and night by the Assyrians. No no longer will God's people be fed lies that they believe, only to find them utterly hollow. God's justice is redemptive. That's the the first point, really. And so this is the start of the sermon, in case you're curious. Um, God's justice is redemptive. He liberates his people from the enemy. This theme is unavoidable all through Scripture. God is always doing this. It's almost as if he's foreshadowing something. And in verse 2, we see that God's justice is not merely redemptive. It starts there, but it just keeps getting better. Look at verse 2. For the Lord will restore, circle that word restore in your friend's Bible, The excellence of Jacob, like the excellence of Israel. Verse 9 amplifies this wonderful truth about restoration. Take spoil of silver. Take spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize. What is that? Well, God is saying to his people, all that was taken from you is to be restored with interest. Nineveh was an extremely wealthy city because they went around taking everybody else's stuff. And God says to his people, you're about to get back what is yours and more. Better yet, you're about to get back what I gave you that has been taken from you. The thing you must know about God's justice is that it is a restoring justice for his people. And God's prophets were always proclaiming this. The faithful of Israel and among the nations of the world were always hearing this message from the prophets, even when the oppression that they were experiencing was the result of having fallen into a ditch they dug for themselves. Anybody been in that ditch? I mean, sometimes the hardship, sometimes the oppression is more related to that, isn't it? That was the case of Israel, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom, thumbing their nose at God until he said, okay, I'm going to let these Assyrians cart you off, and you will be no more. And it was so. And yet God remained eager to restore the wasted years, the purity lost, the the, the worship neglected, the days and weeks and even years squandered. Now, let me just ask you something. 
It's just us, so be honest here. Do you ever have any sense of weeks or months or years squandered? Any ever have any sense of that in your stewardship of the time God has given you? Purity lost to sinfulness. True worship wasted in disobedience. Judah was meant to be thinking about that. You and I are meant to be thinking about that. Turn in belief and repentance to God. He will redeem and he will restore. Listen to his promise through the prophet Joel. Joel was one of the, one of the earliest of the minor prophets. God says, so I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. My great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame. Even when the severe mercy takes the shape of God's discipline of his people, he, it has as its goal the restoration of his people. So God's justice is restorative. All that the enemy takes from God's people will be restored to them. If you fast forward from the days of Joel to the days of Nahum, realize that the oppression that Judah faced, the fear, uh, the insecurity, um, in many ways was the result of Judah's own rebellion against God. Like Israel, Judah had become a people who named God but didn't actually live for God. They had become a people who named God but didn't trust in God or depend upon God. They had become a people who went through the motions of worshiping God on the Sabbath but indulged and gloried in themselves the rest of the week. So God used Assyria to judge his people and awaken his elect in Judah. And then when God's discipline had done its great work, belief and repentance erupts among his people, God graciously restores them. That's the message of comfort that Nahum brings to God's own. Divine justice, though, is not pretty to look at, is it? There are not that many greeting cards that have verses from Nahum 2 and 3. Now, now there are greeting cards from Nahum chapter 1. I got one last week. I marveled at it, but I got it. Look look once more at Nahum's vision. Chapter 2, verse 3. The shields of his mighty men are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the spears are brandished. What, What is Nahum seeing? Well, God is giving him a vision of reality, though it's not yet occurred. And he sees it with crystal clarity. A vast army of Babylonians, with some help from their friends, is approaching the city of Nineveh. And, and the, city, the, the soldiers carry these shields that are colored red, like blood. And it was a fearsome sight. 
There, there's a, a map here that we can show you, backed by popular demand, the map. Um, no one actually asked for that back, but there it is. Um, so you, you can see where, actually I can't see where it is. You can see where Nineveh is on top. Notice Babylon there, down to the south. They're, they're coming to do business with the Assyrians, okay? Um, and it's not going to be good. But, but the Assyrians figure they're invincible. No one has been able to lift a finger to them for centuries. And Nahum gazes into the future and he sees this great army coming toward Nineveh, shields glistening red like blood. And it's, it's almost as if God has deputized the Babylonians to deal with the Assyrians, just as God had deputized the Assyrians to deal with Israel. You get the impression that God's actually orchestrating all of this. And the details are chilling. Just look at your Bibles if you're done marveling at that map. Look at your Bibles. The, um, in verses 4 and 5, you read of the, the, the chariots that Nineveh had so much confidence in are now speeding around the city in utter confusion. Verse 5 says the nobles, the city's leaders, are, are stumbling about. They're completely ineffective to, in leading the people in, in some kind of defense of the city. And note verse 6, the gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is dissolved. The siege of Nineveh ended when the dams that had been built to keep the, the, the Tigris River back uh, were destroyed. There, there was a flood uh, that began to pound the city's walls. And you can just picture in your mind's eye, probably, earthen walls, clay walls, slowly dissolving in water. And so the, these, these huge walls that surrounded the city of Nineveh, all of a sudden, just aren't that big a deal. God did this. Verses 7 and 8 speak of people being taken captive and relocated. Verse 10 speaks of the, the terror and the pain that, that seized the people in this city who figured that they were just invincible. And the point of it is this. The very terrors that Assyria had brought upon other nations, including Judah, are now brought upon Assyria herself. And, and this is telling us something about the justice of God. Yes, God's justice is redemptive for his people, and yes, God's justice is restorative for his people. But don't miss this. God's justice is retributive toward his enemies. What do I mean by that? Well, obviously, it's the word I could think of that started with an R. But, but the thing is, it's a very precise word. Justice from God is always equal to the offense against God. If you want to face God's justice apart from mercy... Pay attention. God does not overpunish sin. And God will not underpunish sin. That's justice under the law. An eye for an eye, says the law. A tooth for a tooth, says the law handed down by Moses. And friend, if you ignore or reject God's mercy in Christ, and you simply desire to be treated fairly by God at the end of your life, I hear that every once in a while from people. Be, be assured of this, 
you will be treated fairly. God's justice is retributive. God punishes in proportion to the offense against him. Now pay attention because we're learning something about God. Assyria was punished according to all that she had done to the other nations. Just as all of God's enemies, all who face his justice, will be repaid in proportion to the sin they've committed. That's fair. And you might think, well, that's, that's not so bad then. Because I've done a pretty good job with my life. My punishment from God won't amount to much then. Certainly not compared to the dirtbag who lives next to me. I'm a pretty good person. You ever hear that one? Of course. Listen, God's holiness is infinite, immeasurable. And so any sin against him is infinitely consequential. And the punishment of any sin against his holiness must then be infinite. That's why the judgment of hell is eternal. God's wrath only seems unfair to fallen people like us because man has such a low view of the holiness of God, the purity of God. Now, the reason I mentioned the sins of of Nimrod and, and his Nineveh, other than just being sort of interested in all that, was to help us understand what the Assyrians and their Nineveh were up to in Nahum's day. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. Where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion walked, the lioness and lion's cub, and no one made them afraid. The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs, killed for his lionesses, filled his caves with prey and his dens with flesh. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. The Assyrians chose the lion as their nation's emblem. Kind of like America has chosen the eagle. Aren't you glad it wasn't the turkey? I think it was Ben Franklin who wanted the turkey and, you know. God has blessed America. Here's the thing. At the peak of their power, the Assyrians were like a lion, afraid of no one. Tearing other nations to pieces for their own feasting, if you will. Dragging people away captive in fear. Where is this so-called lion now, says Yahweh, the great scatterer? And, you know, when you think, anybody, any Chronicles of Narnia fans here? Yeah. When you, you can admit it. It's okay. It's for big people, too. Um, what was I talking about? The... <laughs> The lion, this, this image of the lion, right? C.S. Lewis's story, Aslan. This image of the lion is all throughout Scripture, as it turns out. Back in Genesis, when, when we read of Jacob blessing his sons, and he comes to his son Judah. Who was Judah? Well, he's the forefather and namesake of the kingdom of Judah. How interesting. This is, this is what he says. Judah Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Judah is a lion's whelp, 
And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. What a, what a curious thing that is to read without your New Testament glasses on. This Shiloh, as a lion from the tribe of Judah, will have a scepter and will possess within himself power to rule, to reign, and his people will gladly follow him. This is a prophecy in the first book of your Bible of the one who will descend from Judah and be a ruler of God's people in the lasting sense, that this is to do with Jesus. Turns out the whole book is to do with Jesus, isn't it? <laughs> and you might have already sort of whiffed the, the smell of the gospel in Nahum with our use of words like redeem and restore. These are Jesus' words. These are gospel words. Nahum is a wonderful foreshadowing of Christ. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And one day this lion, says Genesis 49, 11, will rule over a land so blessed and so abundant, even the, even the animals will feast. Why? Because Shiloh, look at verse 11, the lion of Judah washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Again, a curious verse without your New Testament glasses on, right? You put your, your New Covenant glasses on and you see what? Well, wine, as you know, is symbolic of Christ's blood shed for his people. And when that blood is applied to you, sinner though you are, enemy of God that you've been born to be, when that blood is applied to you by faith, all of the blessings of his victory over Satan belong to you. The lion, the emblem of God's glory in Christ is revealed throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. We'll look at Revelation here in a few minutes. You're still with me? So you're thinking, well, what on earth does this have to do with Nahum? Well, here, here's the thing. You begin to see the significance of what the Assyrians had been doing all these decades the Ninevites are doing the same things that their ancestors did under Nimrod. They chose the lion as an emblem declaring their independence from God. They chose the lion as an emblem to declare that they didn't need God. The Ninevites saw themselves as godlike just as the people who had built that tower, ascribing to themselves the character traits that belong to God himself. And you know, the Bible tells us that there is another imposter, another fake lion, who has long sought to rob God of his glory. Listen to how Lucifer is described in Isaiah 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. 
Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, and I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I find it fascinating, and perhaps you will too, just to see that Nahum's prophecy of doom to Assyria is really similar with its taunting and all of that, is really similar to Isaiah's prophecy of Lucifer's ultimate doom. It's almost as if they're connected. Why is that? Because Satan, not people, Satan is the true enemy of God's people. And Nahum speaks a message of comfort to God's people. He says the enemy is defeated, yet his demise is incomplete. And as it turns out, the whole Bible is about this. But listen to 1 Peter 5. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. See, what's going on in ancient Nineveh is simply a microcosm in history of a larger reality that has been unfolding throughout history. Every generation, including ours, has its Ninevites. Every generation, including ours, has its Ninevites. <laughs> Proud, self-serving, the, the we-don't-need-God people. Lustful, greedy, violent, oppressing the people of God. So when we see in the Old Testament that God's justice is redemptive, we're meant to see a picture of how Christ liberates his people from the grip of Satan. And when we see in our Old Testament God's justice being restorative to his people, we're meant to see that what Satan has taken from us, Christ has won back for us with interest. And does anybody actually believe this? Because we're meant to live in the reality of this victory. Not live lives of obsession with that which is yet incomplete. And Nahum 3 makes that very clear. And I don't want you to despair. We're not going to read through that entire chapter together. I want us to just look at the last two verses. And I'll thank you for cooperating. Nahum 3, verse 18 and 19. Your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains. There's that word again. And no one gathers them. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? Boy, how many of you know that can be said of Satan, can it? There is no comfort for those to whom God relates injustice. Don't miss that. Apart from mercy, when sinners stand before God in judgment and receive his justice, there will be no Nahum to encourage, let alone advocate.
What do you do with Scripture like this? We need to wrestle with it because many of us tend to just skip over Scripture like this. And we say things like, well, I'm, I'm so glad God is nice in the New Testament because He's mostly not nice in the Old Testament. What a, what a stupid thing to say in light of the immutability of God. God hasn't changed. Well, you put your New Testament glasses on, don't you? And you look for the wonder of Christ and His gospel in all of this. Nahum is written for all of God's people, not just ancient people in Judah who needed encouragement. Nahum is written for us. We are God's people in exile, aren't we? We're not from here. We're not of here. We're not staying here. We, the church, are the oppressed people of God. And we've been blessed to be able to live oblivious to that oppression, but I'm sure I'm not the only one here who senses that might be coming to an end. Our brothers and sisters elsewhere in the world could testify to this. We are a people suffering under the curse in so many ways. And we are a people often tired and overwhelmed and tempted to despair because we're constantly harassed by our enemy. Am I the only one here who's tired of being tempted with sin? I don't think so. And if we only live by sight and sense, says Nahum, we're not living in reality. We're not living in God's reality. And so, so we need Nahum's greater vision, just as Judah did. Things are not always going to be as they are now. All sin will be punished, and it will either be punished in Christ, or it will be punished in hell. Jesus, our lion from the tribe of Judah, has won a great victory for us. And and it's at the bloody cross of Jesus that God's justice and mercy meet. Did you ever think about it this way? You and I find mercy when we trust that all of our sin actually has been judged. But it's been judged in Christ, in our place. Are you trusting in Christ? Only Jesus The Son of God has an infinite holiness that allows him to be a substitute for us in that sense. A perfect sacrifice for sinners like us. Jesus alone is qualified and strong to take God's wrath for sin. Your sin, my sin, upon himself. Remember, God's justice is redemptive. We're liberated from the curse and its death. Do you realize that even physical death for God's people is a gateway to life as God intended for us to enjoy? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And Jesus' death and resurrection, Christ defeated Satan for his people. And the Father has sent us a comforter, hasn't he? He has sent us a Nahum. Listen to John 15, 26. 
But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Do you see how the Word of God, in the hands of the Spirit of God for God's people, relentlessly points our gaze to Christ, no matter where we're at in the Bible. The Spirit points us to Christ even in a book like Nahum. Jesus has redeemed us because this retributive justice of God has been satisfied by Him in our place. And if you're walking with Jesus right now, friend, He is relentlessly restoring what the swarming locusts have eaten. Did you know that? Did you know that's what sanctification is? The image of God restored in man? Listen to Revelation 5, 5. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And you think, well, when will this restorative justice of God be, be fully realized for God's people? Well, uh, still in Revelation, in Revelation 12, we're given a glimpse of, of Satan pursuing God's people all over the, the wilderness of this world. Uh, Satan is harassing God's people. He's chasing them down. Uh, and just as Judah uh, led God's people through the wilderness during the Exodus, um, The lion of the tribe of Judah leads us, doesn't he? Through our wilderness. And our comforter reminds us this morning of his ultimate victory. Listen to verses 10 and 11 of of Revelation 12. John says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. So Revelation connects the image of the lion of the tribe of Judah with the image of the lamb slain to atone for his people's sins. The lion and the lamb is our Jesus. And there are false lions in our day too, aren't there? Just like there were in Judah's day. Little Lucifer's, little Nineveh's and Assyrians in all generations. Puffed up people doing with their lives the equivalent of saying, hey, let, we should build a tower. We're, we're kind of a big deal now. But the true lion, God Shiloh, gave his life a ransom for his people. And God's people gladly surrender their lives to him. Is that you? Is that what it looks like in your life when you think of appropriating this victory that Christ has won over your enemy? Gladly surrendering to him? Listen, all who surrender to Christ receive far more than the enemy stole. Do you believe that? Let me just give you, this this is something you can talk about over lunch or wherever it is you're going next. Just think about what Christ is now reclaiming for you. 
I'll get you started. Satan took the breath of life and gave us death. In Christ, we have eternal life. Amen? This life, for God's people, is as close to hell as you will ever get. Satan took the gift of love and gave us indifference to God, indifference to others. You know, the opposite of love is not hatred, it's indifference. In Christ, God's love is poured out on us, the scripture says. We, we can love him and love people as he does. We, we can pray for and even love our enemies. Why? Because we know God takes vengeance. In fact, we're not meant to take vengeance on our enemies. Did you know this? It's in the Bible. Satan took the gift of fellowship, and he gave us what in our relationship? Strife, and discord, and selfishness. And in Christ, we have fellowship with God and God's people. We've actually been brought into the very unity of our triune God. Is, is that not amazing to you? Do you think that the gospel is restorative? Satan took the gift of abundance and gave us spiritual poverty. In Christ, we are rich toward God, are we not? We are joint heirs with Christ. We have an inheritance that is actually kept in heaven for us. We can't lose it. No one else can take it. It'll never grow stale. It cannot be eroded and decay. Satan took the gift of innocence and gave us guilt and shame. Some of you know this perhaps more than anything I've said in this little list I've come up with. Please know that in Christ we belong to the one who took our shame, who has erased our guilt and has covered us with all of his righteousness. Amen? And today the church has the same charge as did the ancient church. Don't, don't live as defeated people. That's God's message through Nahum to Judah. Live by faith, not by sight. And we're to advance against Satan's strongholds within us, around us, knowing that they must fall. <laughs> Why? Because Satan's defeated though his demise is incomplete. Let me just say this. If word, I, I pray that this word of God's redemptive, restorative justice is an encouragement to your heart. And, and I also pray that if this word of his retributive justice, the, the reality that all sin will be punished in proportion to its offense against God, if, if the spirit has taken that truth and poked your heart with it, I, I, I urge you to repent and believe in Christ. Just run to him as your shelter from the wrath to come. Run to him as your assurance of friendship with God, no longer his enemy. Run to him expecting him to restore in you everything that the enemy has taken. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for giving us Nahum.
And we thank you for sending us a comforter so that by your spirit we can see in these pages of ancient history a timeless Savior who is mighty to redeem us and restore us. Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts to be those who, like Nahum, get that vision of reality, though it's yet not fully transpired. Let us live in the reality of your great victory for us, Jesus. And Lord, I pray that if there are those whom you have blessed with that godly sorrow that leads to repentance, I pray, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself.